Hello, everyone. Welcome to another awesome episode of the Biff Bites podcast. This is not your loyal host, Gary Mee. This is the Biff Man, sometimes called Mike Long, among other things. So this is the first time I've ever been left home alone at the controls in the Biff Bites studio. So I wanted to jump in here while Jerry and Adam were not around and make a contribution to the, the series that guys have going on the CFP questions and misconceptions, which could also be a good subtitle for the story of my life, but that's another episode. So there were some things that, that I noticed in pattern in this most recent uh, exam cycle. We, we get a lot of email questions from students during the review and in class. Um, and we respond to that very, very quickly, but we watch for patterns. Like what are folks getting stuck on or what, where are they missing questions in their practice quizzes and exams where we thought they would have uh, a more clear handle on some things. So I just picked a couple of things that I wanted to, uh, to touch on and in hopes of, in hopes of these being very easy buckets for you to score uh, in the next exam, uh, in the next exam cycle. And, and there are a couple of things that we would tend to think, yeah, I know all about that, no big deal, but I see missed questions on them. So I, I wanna to touch on that. The first is, is, de is deductible traditional IRA contributions. Easy enough, right? Yeah, but I see too many missed questions on this. So I wanted to make sure we're, we're cool on the rules here. So the issue for someone who has sufficient compensation income to cover the amount they want to put into a traditional IRA. The issue isn't whether they can contribute, it's whether they can deduct the contribution, which for a lot of folks, that's the only reason to make the contribution uh, is, is because it's deductible. Because if it's not, then you can make a strong argument not to put it into a traditional IRA, probably would be better off in a Roth, right? But when the exam question is about the deductibility, we need to know the rules. So it's a simple checkbox piece, really. Uh, the first we want to look at, of course, in the question is, you know, what's the filing status? Because that's going to dictate if a threshold's applicable, that'll dictate which threshold, right? So the big question then is, are they an active participant in an employer-sponsored retirement plan, single filer? Married filing jointly is either spouse and married filing jointly an active participant in an employer-sponsored plan. We need to know that and pick that out of the information we're given in the question. If the answer across the board is no, no, they're not an active participant, then MAGI is of no concern. We don't use the thresholds. The thresholds don't preclude someone from making a contribution. The thresholds only apply when one is an active participant in an employer-sponsored retirement plan. So when it's no, their MAGI can be off the charts and they still can fund an IRA, traditional IRA, and deduct the contribution. For exam purposes, the trickiest scenario that, that comes into play is married filing jointly. One is an active participant. One is not. So I, I see the most confusion with that. And, and we need to know there when the answer is yes, one of them is the active participant married filing jointly spouse would go to the threshold for married filing jointly. The non-active participant spouse has a different threshold in play that is much, much higher 
than the active participant spouse. So we're actually going to use two thresholds. I see folks going to just one threshold in answering uh, these questions, but we actually have two in play. That's probably the most complicated scenario. If you have a single person or both married filing jointly or both active participants, they can still contribute. But we need to then look at the thresholds to see how much, if any, of the contribution is deductible. And that's provided for the exam on the tax tables. Um, make a note though, on those tax tables, I think it's not labeled real well by CFP board. On the tax tables that show the IRA thresholds, <clears throat> the one that would apply to one married filing jointly spouse is an active participant, one is not. They label that spousal IRA, which to me means something different. That spousal IRA is the one where, to me, where one spouse has compensation income, one does not. Uh, so just know that that's what it's referring to in that threshold is actually one's active, one is not. So if you can get this down to just to check the box, uh, are they an active participant, yes or no, and then know to use the, the threshold, you should be fine with these questions. But it did, it did get my attention on some practice questions where we were not applying those rules uh, appropriately. So that was the first thing that kind of jumped out at me. The next thing was um, Roth, another topic that we all think, yeah, I know all about Roths and we, we do on the big picture. Uh, we don't deduct contributions, but the whole goal of having the Roth is to take tax-free uh, distributions down the road. For exam purposes, the confusion that I see is the layers that exist in a Roth distribution, that any distribution from a Roth is gonna have potentially three layers. The first layer that's deemed to come out are just the regular contributions, that yearly uh, contribution that one would make the next layer that's deemed to come out, depending on the size of the distribution, would be any conversion contributions that are uh, in that Roth IRA. And lastly, if the distribution is large enough, the last level that it would tap into is the earnings. So that applies in any situation of the money coming out of the Roth. So you have to pay attention to that and look at the details in the question and say, all right, um, how deep does this distribution get? Because it's going to give you how much is regular contribution, how much is conversion, how much is earnings. So you just need to size it up and say, one, two, three, my levels, how far do we go here? Because if the distribution is only deemed from regular contributions, there's never gonna be any income tax on that level nor will there ever be a penalty, no matter their age or how long they've held the contract. The issue with analyzing one of these questions becomes getting into earnings. And then there are some rules for the earnings to be distributed tax-free. For a tax-free distribution of earnings, there need to be two requirements satisfied. One is that the, the contract has been in place for no less than five years. And that five-year clock starts on January 1st of the year for which the Roth contribution 
was made. So that actually can back it up a year. If someone um, makes a, a contribution, the first contribution in, in March of a year, but says this is a contribution for the previous year, then that timetable is going to back up to January 1st of that, uh, that previous year. So we have for a tax redistribution of earnings, we have to satisfy the five-year holding period. And then the distribution must be associated with one of four possible scenarios. Uh, the account owner's death, the account owner's disability, distribution for a first-time home purchase, albeit a very small lifetime limit of $10,000. And then the, the last possible qualifying scenario is that the distribution is being made um, on or after the attainment of age 59 and a half. Those are absolute requirements for a tax-free distribution of earnings. Must have the five-year holding period and must have one of those four circumstances. In this last exam cycle, I saw some confusion with thinking that any of the IRA penalty exceptions is a qualifying circumstance because folks recognize those four, death, disability, first-time home purchase, and 59 and a half, they recognize those as penalty exceptions for IRA. So they think all the rest of those penalty exceptions would be a qualifying circumstance. They are not. They are not. Only the four I mentioned. The other ones could come into play, of course, to avoid penalty. If we do have a taxable Roth distribution of earnings, and they're not 59 and a half, then in addition to tax, there could be penalty. And then the rest of the penalty exceptions would come into play. But I would channel this to, are we into earnings? And then the, if you think of it as a flow chart, the next piece is, okay, have we met the five-year holding period? And are, is the question describing one of these four circumstances? If we don't get into earnings, then we just need to know those first two levels. And that is that the regular contributions are always tax-free, always penalty-free. The next level of conversions is a little more complicated. And that is, you know, when one makes a traditional IRA conversion to Roth, they pay taxes on that, right? So the distribution of the conversion is never going to be subject to regular income tax, but it might be subject to penalty unless a penalty exception applies. And there, that would be the full, uh, the full array of penalty exceptions. But the, that distribution within five years of that conversion being made would be subject to penalty unless a penalty exception applies. So no regular income tax on a conversion distribution, maybe penalty if the conversion contribution hasn't been in there for five years. And each conversion contribution has its own five-year clock running. And in the distribution hierarchy, it's first in, first out. The earliest conversion would be the one deemed distributed first. So if you've struggled with this, separate it and understand the earning side first. And then you've got those two absolute requirements. If you're into regular contributions and conversions, then just know the rules there. So this is one that it does surprise me at each cycle that when, when we start seeing exam results and we start 
looking at uh, practice questions. It's like, no, we're not quite clear on that. So hopefully this will help just reinforce what you know about this and turn that one into uh, an easy bucket on, uh, on, on your exam. And the last thing I wanted to touch on is uh, net unrealized appreciation. And uh, not, not all advisors deal with this with clients. Some do uh, quite heavily, but it certainly lives in exam land. And I wanted to be clear on, on, the, on the rules here. So net unrealized appreciation, as you know, applies when uh, one is going to take a lump sum distribution from uh, their uh, qualified plan. So 401k plan, profit sharing plan, what have you. And it has, their account has employer stock that they want to hang on to. They're not ready to sell. And it might be entirely employer stock, maybe in a profit sharing plan. So whatever the circumstance, there's employer stock in there that they're not ready to get rid of. They'd like to hold on to it because they believe in the appreciation uh, potential. So there's some special tax treatment for what's called the net unrealized appreciation. And that would be the difference between the employer contribution basis, you know, as the money was put in by the employer uh, and the value at the time that this distribution is going to take place. That difference is the net unrealized appreciation. And the reason this can be a nice thing for a client is typically any distribution from a, a qualified plan is taxed as ordinary income at the highest marginal bracket rate. But when one has employer stock in their plan, net unrealized appreciation would allow them to just be taxed on that uh, appreciation at long-term capital gains rates, not ordinary income tax rates. So it can save a lot of taxes when it works for someone. So we need to understand it. So uh, a simple example, if the um, employer had contributed $100,000 over the years, uh, but they, the value of the account is 300,000, at the time of the distribution, we've got $200,000 of net unrealized appreciation. When we make the selection on the lump sum distribution, that 200,000 will forever be locked in at um, taxed max at long-term capital gains rates. So, um, so it's important that we understand that and pick that information out of an exam question. But it only applies to the employer stock. An exam question might have other funds in there as well. And we have to pay attention to that because the way this works is we have to have a total liquidation of the account within a year to have a qualifying lump sum distribution. So everything's coming out. If the exam question is such that only part of it is employer stock, we can do NUA election on that employer portion. The stock is being distributed in kind to a regular brokerage account. It's not being rolled over. It's being distributed in kind to a regular brokerage account. And then the shares are held there and we're going to have NUA. But we have to read carefully in an exam question to see, is there any other money in there? Was it not 100% employer stock? And if there is other money in there, we have to read what happened to that money. Because if we're not told that the balance of the account other than the employer stock was not rolled over, then 
that's a taxable event. And there could be significant funds in addition to the employer stock. So if it just, if the exam question is just a, a total distribution, lump sum distribution, no mention of any kind of rollover, there would be mention of uh, net unrealized appreciation, separate the employer stock from the rest of the funds. And then know that if, if we're not told in the question that the funds, the remaining funds were rolled over, then that, that difference is going to be taxable as ordinary income. So be careful. I saw some mistakes with that in practice questions where the students were not recognizing there were two pieces to this, NUA plus other money. Hopefully for the exam, it'll just be straight up all employer securities and all you need to apply are the NUA rules where the employer basis in the year distribution is taxed as ordinary income and the net unrealized appreciation will forever have long-term uh, capital gain treatment and any subsequent growth after the lump sum distribution in NUA election will be either short-term capital gain or long-term capital gain, depending uh, on the holding period after the, the distribution. Hopefully that's as complicated as it will get. But I, I did see some mistakes this last cycle where there were employee securities, employer stock, and some other holdings in the, um, in the retirement plan. So make sure you review that and, and turn this one into an easy score uh, as well uh, for your exam. So those were the things I wanted to, uh, to share for the misconceptions and questions series that, uh, that we're doing. I hope you're doing well and tuning in and subscribing to the Biff Bites podcast so you never miss uh, an episode. And as I always say, uh, study on, my friends, study on. Biffman out. Thank you.